1 Corinthians 11 and verse 27. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come not together unto condemnation. And the rest will I set in order when I come. Amen. May the Lord bless his word to us. Let's pray for the preaching. O Lord God of heaven, we come now to the preaching of the word of God. And we pray, Lord, as we come to the preaching, that the minister would be filled with the Holy Spirit, that he would preach the very mind of Christ in these matters, that you would cause him to preach faithfully according to the mind of God as revealed in the Scripture, that he would decrease so that simply Christ may increase. Lord, we pray for the congregation as well, that they would receive the word of God. We pray especially a special blessing on the children, that as we consider these things, that they might ask, not just their parents, but ask their own soul where they might stand with the Lord, and that they may be inclined to close with the Lord Jesus and to come to him. Lord, only thou canst do these things. And so make us know in the preaching of the word that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I hope by now we understand through the series that God gives us our children, that God opens the womb and gives our families, our children. And we must ask what our responsibilities are as parents to the Lord knowing that it is he that has given us our children. What is it that God expects of us? Well, he expects that we would present our children mature in the faith by his help, that we would hand them over back to God as those who know the Lord Jesus Christ, as those who love the Lord and cleave to him as their life, And of course, this requires the grace of God. It's not something that we can ourselves wrestle out of them. However, there is much wrestling that must be done as parents before the Lord, the Lord who has the heart, that we would devote our children to the Lord, not just baptizing them, but handing them over to the Lord constantly, that they might close with the Lord and that they might know Him and that they might come to profess the faith of their fathers and mothers And that they might take their place as communicant members of the congregation, not out of peer pressure, not out of compulsion, not because it's the thing to do, but because they truly are in Christ. You know, when you think of your children, you ought to think in the way that the apostle thought on many congregants. You remember in 2 Corinthians 11 too, he said, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband 
that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Yes, that was, that must be the heart of ministers and elders. That was the heart of an apostle for the congregation that they serve. However, as parents, you are to take up that theme as well. That your goal is to present, that you are to be jealous over your children with a godly jealousy, to espouse them to one husband, that you may present your children as chaste virgins to Christ. Not speaking there, of course, of physical virginity, but of a spiritual and chasteness there. Every parent must have that text in their heart for their child. Parenting for the Christian is to espouse their child to Christ. It really is. You know, when they're born, we baptize them. They're given the covenant sign and seal because they're covenantally holy as per 1 Corinthians 7.14. But that is not the end. That is the beginning. That does not save them, as you well know. Covenant children are to be urged to close with Christ. We've considered that in evangelizing our children, that they would personally receive him as their savior by faith. That is our duty and that is our obligation. But when a child matures and we can detect that they discern the Lord's body and blood, that they have taken up Jesus for themselves, that they have faith in him, we are to lead them and prepare them and mature them to come to the Lord's table as they are in those later years in which they may have not just faith, but spiritual maturity. And in this, we have to avoid two pernicious problems that we find in our circles today. One would be to admit children on a profession of faith too early. Um, And that would be terribly dangerous because our text shows great judgment can and will fall on those unable to discern the Lord's body and blood. However, on the other side, we must keep them from perpetually doubting and perpetually feeling unworthy of coming to the Lord's table as well, even into adulthood, if they are truly in Christ. You know, some churches make the Lord's Supper an impossible bar uh, in order to be granted admittance to, to such the point that I've met men and women well into their 30s and 40s, and they have, as far as I can discern, true saving faith, and yet they are petrified of coming to the Lord's ordinance. And that not, ought not be either. In any case, it is incumbent upon us as parents and as a covenant community as a whole to prepare the children of the church for the day in which they may become communicant members. Just as you think of this, you don't just leave your children to, um, to the pigsty, so to speak. Well, I guess one day they'll have a career. One day they'll be educated, as though these things just sort of automatically happen. You are responsible before God to lead them, to shepherd them, to mature them, not just in things of ordinary life, but also in the things of faith. So, with all that before us and a bit of a lengthy introduction, our theme is preparing covenant children for communicant membership, preparing covenant children for communicant membership, and we'll divide our time into the three heads on your bulletin. First is discerning the Lord's body. Second is maturing in the faith. And third is a path to the table. So first, discerning the Lord's body. Well, we begin with the scripture to understand what the Holy Spirit lays out in our text that we have read. Now, this text is undoubtedly familiar to us 
as several times a year. We hear it before the Lord's Supper as a reminder of coming and communing worthily. Now, it does apply to all Christians, but certainly then we must consider it in view of our children and what would be required of them before they can come to the Lord's table. Because, and we'll divide our time into these two portions. One is, it's incumbent upon all who partake to have an inward discernment, firstly, and secondly, an outward discernment. Both an inward and an outward discernment uh, is necessary of the things of God and of Christ. We'll begin with the outward discernment, which has to do with the fact of whether or not a communicant understands the Lord himself. Does one who commune understand the Lord himself? We find that in our text in verse 29. We are called to discern the Lord's body. You're called to discern the Lord's body. And the Greek word there is to evaluate. It is to distinguish, especially to distinguish uh, what is represented in the supper from what is profane, what is holy, from what is profane. So this requires discernment on the part of the one who uh, communicates, uh, communes. After all, children, this is no ordinary meal when we set the Lord's table. It is a holy meal. And the understanding of the one who communes is that the bread in the supper uh, signifies something very holy. And it's even set apart uh, when we pray over the supper. We ask the Lord to set apart the bread and the wine from an ordinary use to a sacramental use. And we have to understand and discern what it is that the supper represents because we understand that communion is a true spiritual communion with the Lord's body and blood. And the communicants have to discern that. Just in the prior chapter, of course, in 1 Corinthians 10, we find in verse 16, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Why does the apostle ask the question? Because some, several of us don't know that this is the truth of the matter. And so those who come to the Lord's Supper must have this kind of discernment. What is it that I am doing? As I, am I just eating a piece of bread? Am I just drinking a sip of wine from the chalice? No. I may have a true spiritual communion with the Lord's body and blood. Not carnally, as the papists teach, but true spiritual communion. And this is discernment that is required of communicants. And this is something that those who come to the table must be taught. And when the sacramental actions, which are sadly and sorely neglected, you think of the breaking of the bread that the minister does, or when he pours the wine into the chalice, right? These sacramental actions must be understood by those who commune. That this is the Lord's body broken for sinners, that this is the Lord's blood shed for the remission of sins. That those whom Christ has died for and has been broken for are truly washed and cleansed of every spot and stain. And that those who are communing with the Lord of a truth, as in John 15, they understand that he is the vine and they are the branches and they are being nourished 
and strengthened by Him spiritually. They are feeding on Christ by the Holy Spirit. So there is discernment required at the Lord's table. And that's an outward discernment. And we have covered this in our series on worship and on the Lord's Supper particularly. So I won't belabor the point. But there's also an inward discernment as well. There, the Lord's Supper, if nothing else, teaches what? Experiential religion. It teaches experiential religion. And so in verse 28, a man is called to examine himself before partaking of the Holy Supper. So it's not just knowing facts and propositions, not just knowing the doctrine of the catechism, which is necessary, as I'll get to, but it's also knowing one's own heart. And this is especially where children are going to be challenged and must be challenged. They must know their own relation to the Lord. You think of the kind of examination this is. Again, I've covered this in our series on the Lord's Supper. But surely it begins by asking, am I in Christ? Do I believe the precious gospel? Is this my hope? Uh, Do I know that I'm a sinner and my only hope is in the Lord Jesus? Not having mine own righteousness, but the righteousness of faith in Christ. Do I know this? Do I believe this? Then I must ask things like, am I a hypocrite? Am I just, as we heard this morning, playing at religion? Am I in gross, unrepentant sin? Sin that I do not want to loose and release to the Lord? Do I pursue holiness without which no man will see the Lord? There's an examination here, isn't there, brethren? And when I sin, let me ask this of my heart. Do I sorrow over it? Do I repent over it? Do I trust that Christ, if I come to him in faith, will cleanse me of it? And do I resolve to walk in new obedience, however imperfectly I, I may walk? Do I see that my only hope for sanctification as well is the Lord's own grace? Do I ask, uh, having begun in the Spirit, am I now perfected by the flesh? Or do I need the supper itself as well, as well as all the means of grace in order to be strengthened? Is that where I'm seeking help? And then what about, okay, we've talked about now maybe a vertical relation to the Lord. But what about the horizontal relation? For this is communion with one another. Do I examine my heart? Do I love my neighbor as myself, as I heard this morning? Do I forgive those who have wronged me? Do I desire, now back to, so horizontal again. These horizontal things. Do I, do I have this in my heart as well when I come to the Lord's table? A love for the brethren. You can de- look at your desires after Jesus Christ as well. And a child must be trained to get to this point where they ask, Do I desire no one else but Christ? Is he my great desire? Can I put away all things, uh, put away children, childish things for the sake of having Christ? They must be matured to this point. Uh, They have to ask, uh, even their own heart, am I coming to the communion table, but I have no steady devotional life with the Lord? How can I come to the Lord's table? Would I not be a hypocrite? Does outward show of religion without desiring the Lord. And so then, the child of God takes the discernment of the Lord's body and blood and examines themselves. And even though maybe convicted of many things, right? This is why we have preparatory services as we're convicted of some of these things so that when we come to the supper, we've already repented of these things. And we come to the Lord with such faith and love, knowing that Christ forgives sinners. 
and strengthens those who come in a contrite manner to the supper. But these are the things that the Lord expects, such that when the child of God comes to the table, they have looked on the Lord's body and blood, and they have looked in their heart. And then when the minister breaks the bread, they say, this is Christ broken for me. This is the Lord's blood shed, not just for sinners generally, but for me. And they take up the Lord at the table. And as far as yeast is from west, they say, I am forgiven and God in the flesh has come for me. So both an outward, this text teaches, and an inward discernment are required to commune. As I've said, I've covered much of this. You may review larger catechism questions 170 to 174 on preparation for the supper. But also, parents, let us remember the warning of our text that those who do not discern the Lord's body and blood in verse 29 are said to eat and drink damnation or judgment on themselves. And in verse 27, are guilty of the body and blood of Christ because they profane his ordinance. And the judgment is seen in verse 30 in that many have fallen asleep, meaning even many brethren have died in judgment. So we must not come. We must not come to the supper in a reckless or careless manner. We must be careful, brethren. And when it comes to our children, then, we must be careful. If they're not united to Jesus Christ, there is great and grave danger for their souls at the Lord's table. It would be like the worst kind of poison imaginable to give to your child if they are not truly in Christ, to have them profane what is holy. Children, you remember not so long ago, we read in our readings, Daniel chapter 5, and Belshazzar, as you think on the Lord's Supper, he drank out of the vessels of the temple, didn't he? He profaned what is holy in that. And what happened, children? You remember the judgment came upon him. And what did the Lord say? Thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. So we ought not profane holy things. And Belshazzar's kingdom was given to Darius the Mede. And so I would just say that though I am not intended to preach a sermon against paedo-communion this evening, we may consider that error another time. The principles of our text plainly preclude paedo-communion. Plainly so. Children are not automatically given a place at the Lord's table. You can see that plainly here. And what I would say to our parents here is that if you present your children to the table without discerning that they are ready for it, don't just think of their relationship to God. Think of your own. God will have a controversy with you and me if we rush our children to the table before they are prepared for it, knowing these things and not discerning these things in them. And so you need to fear God and you need to love your child and make sure that they are prepared for the Lord's Supper. And don't let that fear seize you up either, but rather use that fear to encourage and exhort your child that they would know the Lord and cleave to him, that they would close with Christ and they would grow in spiritual maturity. Keep exhorting them. Keep praying for them. Keep working with them so that they will come to mature in the faith and take up their proper place, God willing, at the table. 
And I would just remind you, parents who've had your child baptized here, of the fourth baptismal vow of the RPCNA, which is to the end that he or she may grow in the Christian life. You promise to pray for him or her and to train him or her to read the Bible, to pray, to keep the Lord's day, and to understand the nature of the church, the value of its worship and fellowship, and his or her need to what? Seek communicant membership in the church. So you've taken vows at their baptism to prepare your child for communicant membership. God willing, of course, these things aren't automatic and don't happen to every child. However, these are things we labor for by God's help and have taken vows before God to prepare them for. So, how do we prepare them for the knowledge they are to have of Christ for the table? So let's consider that in our second head, which is maturing in the faith. And as I began with the inward and outward categories of discernment, let's continue down that path here. And let's begin with outward or didactic knowledge that they are to have of the Lord before we deal with the experiential. Uh, It's a good question, isn't it? What knowledge ought one who communes at the Lord's table know in order to come to the table properly? You know, what could be a helpful guide for us was the Westminster Assembly's answer to it. In 1645, the Parliament wanted to know what the Assembly meant by ignorant and scandalous persons in the standards, as some of you know. For instance, in Larger Catechism, question 173, this is the phrasing that ignorant and scandalous persons are to be kept from the supper. And in response to Parliament's question and query, they had eight heads of doctrine uh, that the Assembly said should be requisite. I won't go into detail, but I'll also tell you a way in which you may apprehend this for yourself um, uh, in a way that you don't have to memorize all eight heads. So first, they said, one must know of creation and the fall of man, that God had created man upright but he has fallen into many schemes. All men, including the one who communes, are sinners. That God made all things very good, but man has fallen into sin. Uh, Man is made in God's image, but man is fallen. And that means that all men, including the communicant, are sinners. Second, then, they needed to know of redemption in Jesus Christ. That Christ was the only way to God the Father. And it is Jesus Christ who is the second person of the Trinity incarnated. Jesus is God in the flesh. That he lived a perfect life. He died for sinners who believe on him. He was raised from the dead on the third day and now is ascended to the right hand of God by which he rules and reigns over all things to intercede for us as well. Third, they said, you must know the way to have Christ's redemption. That faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is the only way to apprehend the mercies of God and to have all of God's saving benefits. And that faith comes ordinarily by uh, the word of God, hearing the word and the word preached especially. Fourth, they would have you know the nature of faith itself, that faith is a grace, a gift from God, and that in and through faith, We trust in Christ alone for the remission of sin and everlasting life. And that those without the grace of faith will be damned. This is necessary for all who commune to know. Otherwise, why are they even at the table, you have to ask. Fifth, the nature of repentance. 
The communicants must know that those who do not repent of sin can in no way expect uh, to see the Lord. Right? Without the grace of repentance, no man can expect to see the Lord. That faith and repentance are conjoined, and we'll speak about this in experiential knowledge as well. Sixth, the nature of godliness, which all these heads flow, as you can see beautifully. That they must know to walk in holiness. That those who commune must know that they are to be holy, because without holiness, no man will expect to see the Lord. And communicants must know this. Seventh, the nature of sacraments, that they are signs and seals of the covenant of grace. They must know of their baptism, that it did not wash their sins away. Literally, it didn't wash away original sin. And as far as the supper is concerned, they are to rightly discern, as we have heard the Lord's body and blood before uh, partaking of it. Eighth, the nature of the life to come. You have to know, children, the nature of the life to come. Where do the souls of the damned go? They go to hell. Where do the souls of the redeemed go after this life? They go immediately to the presence, blessed presence of God. What is the nature of the resurrection? Even uh, I just thought providentially we read Daniel 12 today. What is everlasting life and what is everlasting condemnation? And so you have to know these things. So these eight heads seemed to the assembly as they considered the scope of the scriptures as things communicants ought to know before they come rightly to the Lord's table. Now, I want you to understand this is no high bar. This is no high bar whatsoever. These are things all of us ought to know. And if you don't know these things, you ought to reflect on that before you come to the Lord's table the next time whether you are 80 years old or not, whether you are a teen. And this does, however, require a level of maturity and knowledge that the very youngest of children do not yet possess. And so again, pedo-communion would be excluded from this. And as we think on that, and you've taken notes, wonderful, but um, the entire scope of this doctrine is found where? Of these eight heads. Now, many of our children have gone through the catechism multiple times. It's found in the shorter catechism. And that's why our expectation is that children will have memorized the catechism and studied it, not just memorized it, but studied it and know the doctrine of the catechism before they come to the Lord's, before they are candidates even for the Lord's Supper. And so parents, here's a way to prepare your children, not only to memorize the catechism, but to understand its doctrine. Don't be satisfied when they recite it. Children are very good at that, but do they know it? Do they know what these things mean? Um, as well as, of course, and I, I shouldn't have to say it, but I'll say it, uh, the scripture that undergirds the teaching of the catechism. For that's first and foremost. Um, and I'll just say, I'll come back to a thought I just had, that the children of this congregation are very smart. They are very smart. Many of our children will astonish us. Many of us have memorized these truths. Many of our children have memorized these truths by the time they're in single digits. And it's a wonderful thought. It's a wonderful thing. Um, and you think about several of them have had catechism awards when they're quite young. And uh, then many of these may even know the doctrines and their meaning. Does that mean, though, that they are ready for the Lord's Supper? By no means. By no means. It's a good place to begin, a necessary place to begin. However, it is not the end. 
This is where the inward and experiential knowledge is vital and it must be had by our children. That they are to be able to examine them, their own self, their own soul in relation to the supper. You know, first and foremost, children, there must be evidence of the new birth in you, of saving faith. That you must know him in the heart as well as in the mind. You know, you think of those eight points of the assembly children. The devil knows those eight points, and yet the devil trembles, doesn't he? As James 2.19 says, he trembles even with his knowledge of God. Even unbelievers have known and have even taught these truths out of the catechism and even out of the scripture. But several have only possessed, these unbelievers have only possessed the faith of demons and not that of Christians. They have lived apart from Jesus Christ in the heart. So what is it that distinguishes the faith of demons from true saving faith? Well, helpfully, the scriptures teach that saving faith accepts, receives, and rests upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life. This is what saving faith does. And saving faith responds to the word of God in obedience to God and obeys him. And so saving faith, we must see the fruit of faith in the life of a believer. That's what we need to see in our children before they can be considered as candidates for the table. You know, we want them to be those who have cast themselves upon the Lord and him only. To put away things like this, self-righteousness. I don't intend to preach a sermon against self-righteousness, but it ensnares many of our covenant children. Let's just be plain. They grew up in Christian homes. They didn't have a lot of the vices that the children of the pagans have. And sometimes they think their standing with God is simply because they're not as bad as the people outside these four walls. That is not the standard of righteousness, and you know it well. Instead, they are to understand that they are sinners. They're not to be tempted to think of themselves as the Jews did in the New Testament, that they're not sinners of the Gentiles, that they're not fornicators or the product of it, and simply that is sufficient to save them. You know this often ensnares covenant children. Maybe if you're a covenant child, it had ensnared you yourself once. What must they say? What must they believe? What must they know from the heart? I am a great sinner, and Christ came to save great sinners. Luke 18, 33. These are the ones of any age that go home justified before the Lord. And so we encourage our children constantly to examine their standing before the Lord. Here is a good time to do it. Regularly at the Lord's Supper, when it is time to observe the Supper as a congregation, it is time to ask our children, What think ye of Christ? Where are you with the Lord? Do you have faith in him? Do you see yourself as a sinner? Do you know what is happening at the Lord's Supper? What I am saying, child, when I come to the table. Just as during the Passover you are to explain these things to our children, you must be deliberate in shepherding them, asking them, preparing them. You know that the gospel is shown in visible form in the supper, that we declare the Lord's death till he comes every time it is, it is observed. And you are to use that great picture of Christ broken, Christ bloodied, 
and poured out for sinners to send our children to him. Teaching them that the supper proclaims that the son of God, my child, loved me and gave himself for me and that the life I now live, I live by the faith of the son of God and him only. That the supper child proclaims that we are saved by grace through faith and that this is the gift of God so that none should boast in themselves, but boast in the Lord only. Ephesians 2. But that must be personal to them, must it not? That must be experiential for them. They must not just say these things, but believe it. They cannot rest on the general truth of the word of God. They must say, I am saved by grace through faith, the gift of God to me, lest I should boast. And you are to shepherd them and inquire with them if this is where they are with the Lord. But as far as experiential knowledge is concerned, conjoined to being exhorted to see themselves as a sinner in need of faith is that as a sinner, they must have repentance towards God as well. For it is repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 20, verse 21, that teaches us without repentance, no man can expect to see the Lord. Repentance, as we considered in our sermon on the free offer of the gospel, is the first work of sanctification in our life. And so it is the case that the very first work of sanctification in us is to cause us to repent of our sin. Faith and repentance going hand in hand. A child cannot say, a person cannot say, I have faith in the Lord, but has no repentance. In many ways for our children then, right, Repentance is truly where the rubber meets the road. You consider 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 11, and that it is to be manifest in them to some degree. For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent, for I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Now I rejoice, not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold, this selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge, in all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. We want to see godly sorrow for sin in our children. Children, that's what will do for you. Um, It will not do for salvation if you only repent. And I want you to look on this and think on this only because of external pressure. It will not do. It will not do before the Lord. Children, if the only reason you repent or you say you repent is because mom or dad has caught you in sin, or your elder or your minister or or another godly uh, 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 congregant here, that is not repentance if that's the only reason you ever find an occasion to repent. Repentance comes with sorrow over our sin. It is a fruit of God's spirit in your life. And so you will be moved to repent of your sin yourself by God's grace. And this is what you must have with the Lord and pray that the Lord would give it to you. And parents, pray that your children would repent of sin. 
And what you have to see, children, is that this conviction of the Spirit does not begin because you are going to be punished in some way. That now you have some sort of temporal, maybe it is even your bottom hurts now because your parents spanked you. That is not the reason ultimately to repent. The reason is what Joseph gave, or David gave first, which is what? That your sin is against God himself. And that wounds you. And you hate that. You hate that your sin is against the Holy One. And it cuts you to the heart. Now considering Joseph, you say with Joseph regarding sin and even the thought of it, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That's where repentance falls from. Not temporal consequences, not simply now, yes, God may convict you in the heart, and I pray he does when your parents or your elder or your, your minister convicts you of your sin. That may be the Lord convicting you, but you have to be cut to the heart as David was when Nathan the prophet came to him. Not just saying, well, mom and dad are displeased, right, children? But we say God is displeased. God is displeased. And that displeases me. And that will move you to godly grief like in 2 Corinthians 7. And it will lead you, if it is true repentance, to the Lord for his mercies, for his forgiveness, his cleansing. But it will also lead you, and mark this well, children, to new obedience. New obedience. Not just I'm sorry, not just I confessed my sin, but now from the heart I want, by God's grace, to walk in newness of life. Now, parents, their repentance will not be perfect. None of us have perfect repentance, but we must discern it is there before they are candidates to the Lord's Supper. And children, in everything I've said thus far, let me just ask you as your minister, do you know the Lord in this way? Do you yourself know the Lord in this way? Do you know him by faith, trusting in him, loving him, but also repenting of your sin? This is how you must know the Lord. This is where you must be before you come to the Lord's table. Well, the next area of experiential knowledge after repentance that you will find manifest are devotional exercises. You know, they must desire the Lord Jesus themselves, for themselves. They must love him, adore him, and serve him. And how does that manifest itself? It manifests with Bible reading, prayers, daily so. We've considered this before. If you're not going to do that, why bother communing with him at his table? You have no desire to commune with the Lord the other days of the year. Why is it on communion day you suddenly want to show up to the table when you have not showed up in your secret place? So we must see that there is a private devotional life being culminated uh, children, if you have no interest in Jesus day by day, why would you want to come so near to him at the Lord's table? That's what communion is. It's not a rite of passage for you as it is in some churches. It's not one of those things you do because your peers are doing it and you feel left out. No, you come because you love the Lord Jesus and you want and you desire him and you wish to commune with the God of heaven. You pant after him as David did. This is the inward knowledge 
of the Lord that separates in some ways the wheat and the chaff, doesn't it? 1 Corinthians 16.22, If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. That would drive you, children. That would push you. It would press you towards the Lord Jesus Christ daily. You know, and you think about things like family worship. If you're ready for the communion table, would you roll your eyes when it is time for family worship? Whenever the Bible is opened in the home, would you say, well, you know, I'm not so interested. Can we go play video games or go outside or do something else? Uh, Absolutely not. Would you, when it's time to sing the praises of God, just tune out and check out when prayers are offered to the Lord uh, himself? Would you then say, maybe it's time to sleep now? No, no. And in the corporate worship service, even this moment, if you were readied for the table, you would, you would be engaged, heart, mind, and soul. You wouldn't be coloring You wouldn't uh, snooze. You wouldn't look around and do other things, would you? When the word of life is opened, you would receive it as the Thessalonians did, as the very word of God. When prayers are offered up in the corporate assembly, you would be praying along with your minister who's offering these prayers to God. You would sing the Psalms with your brethren here. You wouldn't just shuffle your feet and look around. You'd be engaged in the worship of God. And you would worship God because ultimately you know he is worthy of it. And he is worthy of all of your life. Parents, this is how we lead our children in the things of God, isn't it? Leading them to consider these things, to check their behavior before the Lord, even now. You know, if their child is, this is one of the things I've observed in in another time, in another place, doesn't have to be mentioned, where children far, far too young, were communing members. And they were literally laid out in the chairs, sleeping, and then make their way to the Lord's Supper. I don't know what in the world the parents and the elders of that congregation were thinking, but they were certainly not doing these children any favors. You teach your children that they are to be engaged in all the parts of public worship and their private devotional life will inform whether they have maturity for the sacrament. And as I mentioned before, communion is not just uh, vertical, it's also horizontal. We come together as the people of God at the table, don't we? And so your child must grow to have a love and a concern for the body of Christ as well. No good just to say, well, you know what, it's me and the Lord. We heard that this morning in the parable of the Good Samaritan, didn't we? They must also show a love and an interest in the people of God. Should they not, if they're ready to commune with the people of God on Christ, should they not, should they not be praying for the people of God? Should they not love the people of God? Otherwise, they profane the table. They should also then seek to love their neighbor as themselves, as we heard this morning. They ought not be selfish. They ought not be self-centered, but they must think of others as well. This is a sign of grace in them. Uh, They're quick to forgive others. You know, even you think of siblings. Several of our families have, have large families and many siblings. How do they relate even to their siblings? Are they willing to forgive and to love? And parents, as we talk about preparing your children, 
What good is there in raising your children in these ways if you yourself don't exhibit these graces? Where are they going to learn? The Apostle Paul says, imitate me, follow me as I follow Christ. You want to lead them to the table, you better be leading them by example as well. Otherwise, they are not going to understand these things. Worst of all, they will see you as a hypocrite yourself. So you must have a life of constancy. But if you are constant with the Lord, praise the Lord, right? See what a godly example of godly parents bore fruit in young Timothy's life. When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded that in thee also. See what a great example you might be, parents, if you would live a life of faith and repentance and love for the brethren as well. You will be a stellar example used by the Lord. Now, of course, these things don't save our children. However, the Lord says he uses such means in their lives. You know how many children of the covenant have walked away because they say mom and dad were hypocrites. Let that not be on you. Well, that turns us to the question, at what age should children come to the Lord's Supper? Now, our standards wisely do not prescribe a fixed age, and we're thankful for that. However, I think a... a, um, Consideration of what we have heard would preclude young children. There are many churches in our, and I've alluded to this, in our circles that reject pedo communion, which we must and should do, as it is clearly repugnant to 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, There is a great danger in it. Um, But what age would be wise to consider a child at the table? Because there are several who are functional pedo communion folks who have four-year-olds and five-year-olds at the table after making a bare profession of faith, so-called. Even without prescribing a fixed age, we must see that the Lord's Supper is for a level of maturity in Christians. Uh, We can look to the light of nature as a guide. You know, you think about the light of nature and how children grow to uh, to physical maturity in general, and it's easy to link that to spiritual maturity as well. Uh, You might remember that the Jews considered a child an adult by the time they were 12 or 13 years of age. Now, children, I think it's plain to see that a 12 or 13-year-old in Christ's day is very unlike most of our 12 and 13-year-olds today in our society because soon after this, they were expected to have a family of their own. And certainly the 12 and 13-year-olds in our congregation are nowhere near that. But certainly by the time that children are teenagers, say 15 years or so, there would be a kind of maturity to be faithful uh, over time to observe their exercise of the things of God. Now, for instance, again, consider light of nature once more. You know, you think about the age in which several of the children of the congregation have started to have learner's permits and driver's licenses, right? At this point, there is in society a sense, and some of us have a sense that our children must wait a little longer than that, but uh, that said, that you can pilot a 4,000-plus-pound vehicle at 70 miles an hour and have the kind of maturity involved to not completely destroy a city block. That's kind of the age in which light of nature teaches us that children are starting to get to a certain level of maturity. And the Lord's Supper has a weight and a gravity that far excels that, of course. You also think about uh, voting in society, what we think about the ages of around 18. So... um, 
Those are areas in which you might consider where even society sees maturity start to blossom. But uh, here's perhaps a very good guidance for us all. Um, You must see in our children, your children, a desire to put away childish things. Right? The apostle said in 1 Corinthians 13, 11, when I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. That's a very helpful rubric by which to lead children to the table. You know, and this is a challenge sometimes for 30-year-olds in our society, isn't it? Who are still playing games and who are still living as children, even with parents. And in a society that has this kind of idea, we want to see our children as covenant children maturing and putting away childish things. And that is a good way to lead them. The Lord's Supper is not a place for the immature. A person must discern and examine. And these exercises are not just merely mental, but experiential. You know, when a five-year-old comes to the Lord's Supper, that ought to alarm us. It ought to greatly alarm us that someone who's playing with children's toys is coming now and we expect to commune with such a person at the Lord's. This is not a slam against children. This is, they're just not ready for it. And I think this has been easier to diagnose just the folly of it uh, in, in congregations like ours and many congregations that use a real table, that use uh, a, a common cup and a common bread, because it's obviously absurd to have a five-year-old come and commune with us. But when they're sitting in the chairs out there, it's easy to hide these things. And so we understand that even the Lord's own institution would prohibit a lot of what is being done. Now, one objection, I know this sermon's going a bit long. I I trust that these things are necessary for us, though. One objection that is often raised, want to deal with. You might say, well, my child says they believe in the Lord and that ought to be enough. And the answer, I think, as we've considered what we have considered thus far is the answer is no. It's not enough. It's not enough. Because covenant uh, children possess what theologians call and I've often called the seed of faith. That comes from 1 John 3, 9. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him. That's where the idea comes from. Now, uh, consider this experientially for those of you who grew up in a Christian home. You remember you never had a day, likely, most of you, that you had a sudden conversion experience. A lot of you will say, I've always believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, However, with that seed faith, it blossomed, it matured, it became a habit of faith later on in life to the point in which you were able to say absolutely, decisively, I do reject sin, I do repent of it, I do love the Lord, and I do want to follow him only. And you knew what these things meant as you matured in faith, where you were able and ready to exercise devotion to the Lord and then truly make a public profession of faith as your faith matured. And the supper is not for those who possess seed faith, but habitual faith. You think about this, an examination, a discernment, these are habits of maturity. And so we praise God that many of our children exhibit seed faith. But we want it grown We want it matured. We want it proven, tested as genuine and sincere. And the danger is also this. You well know it. I hope I don't have to teach this now. That children in many ways simply want to please their parents. 
You want me to be a Christian. You want me to have faith in the Lord. Okay, I will do it. Not for my sake, not for the Lord's sake, but because of my parents or because of my elders or because all my friends are at the Lord's table at a certain age. That is not the reason to come, children. You come because you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. You come because you can see no hope for yourself outside of him. And you truly believe in him. And you long for him and you desire him. And you seek to walk in holiness, though you know as a sinner you often fail. You are not to be man-pleasers, but Christ-pleasers, children. So we praise God that your child says they love the Lord. We trust that is true, but we need seed faith grown. And also to see if theirs is just a temporary faith but that the, Lord, the word instead has landed in good soil. You can think of the parable of the soils in that. So let's wrap up and conclude uh, quickly with path to the table. So all that said, you are to labor parents for the sake of your children to lead them to the table. You cannot do this work yourself. It has to be the grace of God, but he will use your exertions for the sake of your children. Just as the Lord uses the exertions of ministers and elders for the sake of their flock. Same thing. So firstly, you are called to prepare your children for external knowledge. Teach them the scripture as Timothy's mother and grandmother did. Teach them the meaning of their catechism. To have that body of divinity that our forefathers in the faith saw as prudent and necessary to know from God's word. But also encourage their experiential knowledge, that inward knowledge of Christ. Guide them constantly, constantly to him. In all points, take them to Jesus. When they repent, remember they are repenting to the Lord and not just to you. Guide them in all ways. Ask them where they are in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ, especially at the Lord's Supper, maybe even at birthdays. What a wonderful thing to ask. Yes, you have your natural birth, but are you born again? Ask them about their sin and whether it actually grieves them. Are you bothered by your sin? Are you bothered by what it is in the sight of God? Hideous. Ask them about their love for Jesus Christ. Ask them just a plain question. What is it you love about the Lord? What do you love not just about the Lord, but what the Lord has done for you? Ask them about their private devotional life. Is it under compulsion or is it willing? Help them put away childish things, get rid of childish folly. Folly is bound up in their hearts and the Lord's table is no place for fools. Absolutely not. And as the Lord's Supper is part and parcel of worship, teach them the value of worship, to be engaged in all parts of worship and all kinds of worship, family, private, public. And keep as well a rough target age for a goal. It's not necessarily going to happen. But if we said something like 15 years of, uh, of age or so is a good target age, some earlier, some later, God forbid, some never, these, this is a good time, though, to seriously take a child's walk with the Lord. And, of course, before they're 15, but certainly by the time they're 15. And pray for them. Pray that you would see a habit of faith and repentance in their life. As Job, as Job did, bring your children constantly morning and evening before the Lord. This is why the Lord has given you these children. He has not given you these children, first and foremost, to give them a smashing career. Not first and foremost, so even that they would have a happy family life. 
or productive citizens in society, but that they would know him and they would cleave to him as their life. You want to be fathers and mothers as Hannah did to to turn back, to turn back the child to the Lord and devote them and consecrate them to him. And so it's our sincere hope that all these children will be communicants. So let us all look upon our children and have the heart of the apostle to say, for I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I've espoused you to one husband that I may present you a chaste virgin to Christ. And may God help us do so. Amen. Let us arise for prayer, if able. O Lord God of heaven, make us wise, make us loving, make us caring in relation to these covenant children. And we pray, Father, that all the children here would have faith, uh, that they would all possess even now the seed of faith, and that we are merely watching that faith blossom and grow to the point of godly maturity. If there's one thing we might pray, it would be that our children would desire after Christ. That they would say that there is none in heaven that they desire but him. And that there is none on the earth that they have either but him. But that he would be their portion. That he would be their life. That he would be their health. And that he would be their hope that they might even say that when father and mother abandoned me, the Lord would take me up and that they would desire to be in the house of the Lord all the days of their life and that they would earnestly long for him and earnestly long for heaven, help them put away childish things. We know in our society we are children far too long. Help them mature and desire coming to the Lord's table and Uh, Father, as elders, help us to discern when children are ready, remembering that it's not just on the parents uh, to uh, say that the children are ready, but the elders are the ones who admit to the table. And may we be reminded of these things. We pray you would bless this word now. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond with praise to God. Psalm 90.